Hello and welcome to this Head Talks podcast. I'm Terry Stiasny and I've been talking to Josh Dixon, who's an EMDR therapist. He's also an addiction counsellor and interested in positive psychology, as well as running surfing retreats. He told me how he first became interested in EMDR. So much of the pathology of addiction is trauma-based. Uh, there's either through very poor attachment in early childhood or when you witness something very traumatic it almost like triggers you to another state and then often the need to change the way you feel through chemicals etc comes into play so it's just a great tool to be able to use initially within addiction treatment but the other thing is I when I was training the person I was shadowing the most he used a lot of EMDR and I saw how effective it was in his practice and the results he was getting and one of the great things about EMDR is it's so evidence-based that um, you can read that it's evidence-based but witnessing it and how quickly it works was amazing and then actually he offered to do some with me because I'd had a few bereavements in a very short amount of time so I went through that process myself as well and saw how effective it was for me and that's actually often I think a lot of psychologists processes that you know they go through a process and think wow this works I want to be able to help other people with this because it works so well. Can you explain for those who might not know what it is what is EMDR basically? So EMDR is a, it's an integrative psychotherapy or psychological technique for working primarily with post-traumatic stress disorder. It stands for eye movement desensitization and reprocessing. One of the main core features of it is something called bilateral stimulation. And via bilateral stimulation, a couple of things happen in the brain. And when it was first used, eye movements were considered the, the way it worked. If you move your eyes to the left and right, back and forth, back and forth, you're generating this bilateral stimulation and you're getting different hemispheres of the brain lit up, etc. So initially when it was first used, and when Francine Shapiro developed it in the 1980s, she was using eye movements, but since then they've discovered that you can use many other forms of bilateral stimulation so you can use sound you can use touch you can use a combination of those and actually sitting in front of me here is a bit of equipment I use that uses sound and and touch at the same time and I find that that's actually more effective than using the eye movements and now Francine Shapiro herself who created the MDR wishes now that she could just call it reprocessing therapy as opposed to EMDR because the eye movements aren't as necessary as initially thought. What do we know about how it works, about the processes in the brain that allow the brain to reprocess these traumatic memories? So far, we know a bit. We know that it works because all the random clinical trials keep showing again and again it works. And we know a couple of strong hypotheses of how it works. One is that when we're traumatised and we revisit a trauma or we're being re-triggered by a trauma what's happening is that the prefrontal cortex of the brain shuts off that's our sort of thinking area of the brain our cog- most cognitive part and the limbic system our fight flight freeze mechanism in the middle of the brain is activated and when we revisit traumatic memories what we often find is the prefrontal cortex is switched off and we're back into the limbic system so it's almost as if the the memory is is all happening again one of the things that emdr does is it gets the prefrontal cortex back online and allows the prefrontal cortex to reprocess what's going on in the limbic system and 
when I talk with clients, I often say that what's happened when the memory's been failed to be properly processed is it's not date stamped. So therefore, it's not over until the prefrontal cortex sort of literally almost date stamps it. It gives it a context. It tells you this thing is over, etc. So one thing that we know that is going on when we're doing MDR is we're getting the prefrontal cortex to do what should have happened prior, but for whatever reason didn't happen. And it's very similar, they think, believe, to what happens in REM sleep when we process our anxieties, etc. And when you're in REM sleep, you'll see people with the rapid eye movement. So that was one of the early hypotheses of why EMDR, EMDR was actually doing in a sort of forced, conscious way what's happening in REM sleep when you're dreaming. But another uh, thing they've realized now is that EMDR also works on what we call our working memory. And the working memory, how I explain to clients, is people who used to, prior to mobile phones, will get this more. But back in the day, you used to be asked, what such and such is phone number? And if you didn't have a pen on paper, you would be repeating that number in your head if you wrote it down. And that's you using your working memory. And the working memory hypothesis of how EMDR works is that the bilateral stimulation taxes the working memory so that if you imagine that you had a certain amount of bandwidth and the pipe is X wide, and when you visit that trauma, you become completely flooded by it all. The bilateral stimulation during EMDR takes up some of that bandwidth so that when you're reaccessing traumatic memories, etc., not so much is coming through, and then you're not overwhelmed and you're able to work through it. So you've got two things going on. You've got this sort of parallel process to REM sleep, and you've got the taxing of the working memory, which then allows you to not be flooded. And also the other thing that the bilateral stimulation does is it stops you from dissociating. So often when we access a traumatic memory or we're reminded of it, we go into a dissociative state, we zone out, we become a different person, etc. The bilateral stimulation stops that from happening. And by doing that, it allows you to actually start processing what's happened. Those are the kind of key hypotheses of how it works, but it's a very new therapy, as in it's only been around since the late 1980s. And psychology is a very young science, so we're still figuring a lot of these things out. But as you say, the evidence suggests that it does actually work. And what kind of effects have you seen in people to show that they can start to recover from trauma? Most clients will report things in retrospect. So, for example, I had a, a client who was terrified of heights after going to a sporting event and being very high up in the stadium once. And an example would be they would come and they say, do you know what, I realised I went up all the escalators and didn't even think about it. You know, and, and normally I would have freaked out, but it didn't even cross my mind. Or someone might say something like, I was always scared of men after I was attacked and I went to a party at the weekend and it was only the next day that I realized that I really enjoyed the company of certain guys there. It didn't even cross my mind that I used to be triggered so badly. It's often that way that they're able to do things and then they suddenly realize, God, I, couldn't, I haven't been able to do that for years and now I can. It's really lovely to hear that, but that's the most reported way. More obvious ones are when I hear a bang, I don't jump anymore. I actually slept all the way through the night last night. Or I was able to sleep without the light on. Or even, do you know what? I was able to read a chapter of the book. Normally I can only read a page before I zone out. 
or I don't have to fiddle with my phone all the way through watching TV. These are many of the sort of examples of people saying that, you know, in varying contexts, from I was able to leave the house to I was able to check my emails or open my mail. You know, these are many of the different ways that people behavior changes almost sort of unconsciously and then they have the conscious realization that wow i'm changing I, i'm i'm over that now i feel better i'm sleeping i'm being much nicer to my family i'm being a much better friend i'm able to enjoy my life again it varies on the context of the trauma but but those are the kind of results we see time and time again and so how do you approach it when a client comes to you and and they want your help? What is the process that you and they go through? How does it work? Sure. So first of all, it has to start with detailed assessment. And that can be anywhere between one and four sessions. One of the ways that EMDR works is the model that underlines it is this thing called the Adaptive Information Processing or AIP model. And that very much works on the fact that we believe that residing in our brains or in our mind is the often the information needed to heal but sometimes that link is lost so for example if i fall off my bike and can't get back up on my bike i know i can ride a bike but something is broken down that every time i try and get up on that bike i just am overwhelmed so that information in a way is those links have been lost the adaptive information is no longer there or accessible it's there but it's not accessible the process starts to reveal this adaptive information. For example, I was surfing with some friends the other day and I actually did a little bit of work with this friend, not in a detailed way, but this illustrates what happened. It's first of all, he was scared of the crowds and then we start doing some processing and then this adaptive information came in and said, hold on a sec, I'm as good as everyone else here, why am I freaking out? He had that information, but he couldn't access it. Did a bit more processing, and then it's like, do you know what? I've been surfing for a long, long time, and I've never had an accident. Again, that's more adaptive information there that he couldn't access until you do the processing. And that activation of it is part of how you heal, because it's what's going on there is the prefrontal cortex is starting to make sense of everything. One of the things we have to look out for as therapists is, does the client have enough adaptive information to process this so that's one of the things we look for so some people you can pick up that they're actually pretty stable they've got a lot of resources they can do this work some other clients you in assessment stage it might be this person doesn't seem to have any kind of self-belief their, their self-esteem is through the floor they don't really have many experiences for example someone's trauma might be that they went through something and they, they no longer believe that they're loved. But then the adaptive information comes in that actually they've had very loving relationships before, their parents are very loving, their siblings love them, and then that repairs that sort of irrational belief. Some people may never have been loved. They might have been orphaned, they might have been really badly abused, etc. So you have to really be very careful to find out if someone's got enough of this what we call adaptive capacity to do the work. And if they don't, we have to do specific things to build that up first. And that's where often positive psychology and things like that come in. And mutual support groups, so for example, someone might have had or issues growing up in an alcoholic home, so you might say refer them to Al-Anon meetings, 12-step meetings, and they go there and they start to be build up that adaptive capacity by being loved and understood and heard, etc. So it's very case-by-case basis but 
those are the important things it's very very good assessment first to see whether someone can do this work because it's not easy confronting the past and, and coming through it if you're accessing some of these traumas that in many cases i guess are buried very deep that's presumably it has risks involved yeah so the risks are that's why we always have to check whether a client has the resourcing and stabilization skills first to be able to manage their emotional world and draw upon internal and external resources they have the resilience for when they're not in the therapy room i'm very confident if someone is in the room i've you know i've witnessed and been able to hold people going through horrific things relaying horrific things bouncing back from it freaking out bringing them back down etc that's for me not a problem you know we've, we've all been very well trained in that it's just making sure that when the, the clients have the ability to maybe start being able to self-soothe etc outside of the therapy room so again that's very much part of the assessment phase of the therapeutic process because people often think oh emdr that's just doing the bilateral stimulation it's not it's all the preparation stage as well and the post stage the reflection and, and checking in how people are doing afterwards it's essential and i think certain therapists might skip that to their detriment and to their clients detriment so then assuming that you can proceed to that next stage how does that bilateral stimulation work so you've got the kit here tell me a bit about what you would do you would identify an image that represents the worst part of a memory you would identify the negative belief that goes with that because one of the most debilitating aspects of trauma is the meaning that people attach to an event so like this happened to me because and often the because will be followed by i'm bad i'm defective i'm unlovable i'm unsafe i have no options etc I'm, I'm powerless i'm weak so we always look at what we describe as the negative cognition which is nearly always irrational all men are rapists I'm really bad for thinking that, etc. You know, these are the negative beliefs. They've got the evidence that that's not true, but they can't work through that. So we often have to really identify what the negative belief going on there, very much like in CBT. Then we identify the positive cognition, something you'd like to be able to say about yourself, even if it doesn't feel true. And we grade those with specific psychological biometrics. So we use certain scoring, standard scoring techniques for that and we always identify what the emotional response when you connect to this memory so people might say oh, i'm very anxious or i'm fearful or, or usually or, i feel deep shame and we always also look at what's happening to the body you know Bessel van der Kolk's famous book is the body keeps the score and it, he says that for a reason that we store a lot of our traumatic responses in the body so oh i'm feeling sick or i've got tingles in my arms and my legs or i've got a splitting headache or you know, these, these manifestations of trauma in the body. We're looking at what's going on visually, we're looking at what's going on cognitively in the mind, we're looking at what's going on emotionally and what's going on literally physically, somatically as we say, or in the body. So we identify all of that and then what we do with the client is once we've established what we call a safe place and the resourcing is there, etc., we'll invite the client to bring up the traumatic memory then start doing what we call a set of bilateral stimulation. And at the end of that set, we will just say, well, what are you noticing now? And clients will sometimes often think that there should be something they're noticing. So if we've done our job properly, we'll hopefully have said that that's not important. We're always looking at what is coming up. Let's say I was very badly beaten up. I might say, oh, I'm seeing the fists and the 
feet coming down upon me. And I might say, as a therapist, the most important thing as an EMDR therapist is the processing. So I'm not interested in the details while it's going on. I'm interested in that the client is processing. So I'll say, okay, go with that. I'm now the client and bilateral stimulation is happening at the end of the set. Therapist will then ask me, what are you noticing now? And I might say, I'm noticing actually, I'm not really seeing much right now, but I'm really sort of feeling quite a bit sick in my stomach. And I can therapy, okay, go with that. And this process keeps going on and the therapist has to be very aware that things could be manifesting visually, cognitively. And you start to notice the change. As the adaptive information comes in, clients will often report, you know when you're, it's really working, when they say, do you know what, I'm thinking about what I'm going to have for lunch today. Then you know that the memory is starting to be processed. You always have to go back to the memory to check that other memory channels haven't opened up. You keep going until a client will report, do you know what, it doesn't disturb me anymore. They might say it's sad and I wish it hadn't happened but I'm not disturbed by it. And they often report that it's a bit more distant. It's a bit more one thing that happened in my life, not the thing. They might say, do you know what? I don't feel sick or tingly anymore. I feel relatively calm and relaxed or just kind of a bit indifferent. And then we know that it's been processed. Then we check the positive cognition that we looked for at the beginning, like I can be loved or I, I can be healthy or I, I can be safe. All right, I do have options in my life. I'm not powerless. And then once that's fully installed, we will then do a body scan to check that there's nothing residing in the body. We always ask the client, what do you notice when you scan your body? And they might say a specific feeling, or they might say a general feeling, or they might say nothing at all. If they might say, do you know what? I actually feel quite relaxed in my, in my arms and across my chest, and we will install that. And basically that's how we process a memory and then we will process all the significant memories that someone is going through and then we will process the triggers and what you often find is those all those triggers that a client reports in assessment a lot of them will be gone once you've processed the past memories because they were so linked and then you might process any future anxiety related to this then you're pretty much done and that's with trauma. And you can actually work with EMDR with OCD and depression now as well in, in exactly the same way. And as you say, you see lasting results once that process is done. One of the great things about both EMDR and trauma-focused CBT, that the two modalities recommended by NICE and the World Health Organization, etc., is they're actually curative. And I'll say this to clients, it's gone now. You've let go of that. It's not going to come back. It doesn't mean that you might not go and do something later on that might be traumatic but once those connections have been made they can't be unmade in that kind of way so clients will often report you know that I still can sleep with the light off they don't relapse into behavior which can often happen with with many other forms of mental illness or pathology or conditions and that's really gratifying and I know that when EMDR first hit the scene a lot of therapists felt very threatened because people were getting well from their PTSD in six to eight sessions instead of three years with their analytic therapist, etc. So I know that there was initial resistance in that way. Time and time and time again, clients come and they don't need to come back. Josh Dixon, thank you very much. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me.